0: Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 2.2, Program to Succeed. Semiconductors are marvelous. Well, not really now. They're only mediocre conductors of electricity, but their electric performance can be improved by doping them with various additives. That's the scientific name for the process – doping. There are two major ways a semiconductor can be doped, but the really interesting stuff happens when two differently doped semiconductors meet. Their meeting point becomes a semiconductor junction where electricity gets confused and can only flow in one direction. There is another kind of one-way electricity valve, and that's vacuum tube diodes, but vacuum tubes are bulky, fragile, and draw a lot of power a semiconductor junction is just two flavors of artificial rock clinging together the reason those one-way streets for the currents are important is that with some creative engineering you can use a few of them to make a new building block for electronics a logic gate a logic gate is a unit with a few input terminals and an output they come in several basic types, say an AND gate would only let current come out of its output if it gets current on every input, while an OR gate shows something on the output if any of the inputs receive a signal. With these logic gates, the old punch card practice of representing data in binary form, hole or no hole, current or no current, ones and zeros, is very handy as was demonstrated by mathematician Claude Shannon in 1937. With these logic gates, boolean algebra and its logical expressions are unavoidable. Even by themselves, logic gates can get you pretty far. You can make a system responding to signals and various inputs in specific ways. The early video games from the previous episode were made with logic gates in the form of transistors. But why stop there? You can build a really complex system of logic gates which would be able to receive data in binary form through one set of inputs and then process it in various exciting ways which way exactly would be set by instructions coming in through a different set of inputs. Now this would be something like a general-purpose processor. Not a microprocessor though. Now, until the end of the 50s, those logic gates in your processor had to be built out of vacuum tubes. People were aware of semiconductors and their properties, however practical solutions involving them tended to be inefficient, or hard to manufacture, or really expensive, or all of the above. There were transistors out there, but had things stayed the same, they would have been unaffordable for the always short-on-cash game industry of the 70s. Clearly, things changed. They changed because in 1959, at Bell Labs, two guys built a thing. After many earlier researchers had failed, Mohamed M. Atala from Egypt and Dawon Kang from South Korea developed a functional Metal Oxide Semiconductor Field Effect Transistor, or MOSFET for short. This type relied not on semiconductor junctions, but on electric fields to work as the one-way valve, and figuring out that was even possible was a result of advances in quantum physics. The MOSFET was everything people could dream of. It was cheap-ish, it was simple to make, being basically printed on the surface of a silicon wafer. The only catch was that Bell Labs didn't really care, as it specialized in telephones. But when semiconductor companies like Fairchild and RCA heard about MOSFET, they were interested and started tinkering with the technology in the early 60s, even though it took them years to get it to mass production. In the second half of the decade, the entire industry was trying to master MOSFET an advance from making individual transistors to cramming lots of them into medium and large-scale integrated circuits. The public could easily track the progress in the field by observing calculators. In the mid-60s, mechanical desktop calculators in offices faced competition from electronic rivals with transistors or even basic integrated circuits inside. As those circuits were sucking up all the logical elements around them and packing them tighter and tighter, the calculators got smaller. In August 1969, Japanese company Sharp introduced the QT8D calculator, where all the key logic circuitry was inside just four chips, developed for them by Rockwell Microelectronics in the United States. This calculator was actually portable. It only weighed 1.4 kilograms and had a carry handle, and you could use it anywhere where you could plug it into a wall socket. And in America, it cost only $400. Save a spot in the line for me. Everything went into high gear in 1970-71. There was a Japanese company called Busycom Corporation that kept bugging various American semiconductor outfits with its ridiculous project to stuff everything needed to make a calculator into a single chip. Eventually, it got two companies to cooperate. One of them was a young and inexperienced and desperate MOSTEC, which, in spite of all the issues it had, did deliver the MK6010 chip late in 1970, and it was immediately dubbed Calculator on a Chip. While Bizicom put the chip to use in its $400 calculators, including the first pocket calculator LE120 Handy, the industry was already seeing this feat of engineering as the beginning of cheaper electronics if you manage to put all the sensitive logic into a solid piece of artificial rock that only needs to be fitted into its space on the circuit board you're going to save tons of money on labor it saves time in production too and you can replace skilled engineers with sweatshops calculators on a chip from mostek texas instruments and general instrument also marked the beginning of systems on a chip, like some of the Pong chips these three companies would be making a few years down the line. Where there was demand, semiconductor manufacturers would always be ready to flood the market with those everything-included solutions. Though releasing entire games like that might have been a mistake. Another thing that got its start here were microcontrollers, Self-contained chips that would just sit there and manage a specific device or appliance, respond to inputs. It's kind of hard to name what they can be used for, since most electronic devices around us today have them. Fridges, cars, TV remotes, let me look around. I wouldn't be able to have a keyboard on a cord without a controller encoding inputs from a hundred buttons into something fit for a thin cable. And yes, there is a microcontroller in this microphone too. It burnt out in the previous one. And I said into this microphone that Busycom had two partners in the United States. The second one was also a small company, though a bit more experienced than Mostag. Its name was, and is, Intel. Intel was quite happy making RAM chips and had no idea how calculators worked when Busycom knocked on their door. Busycom came because... Okay, try to follow. See, Sharp used to work with Fairchild, then Sharp got into the contract with Rockwell to build that calculator with a carry handle, so Sharp was not allowed to hang out with anyone else anymore. But an executive from Sharp liked doing business with one of Fairchild's co-founders, Robert Norton-Noise. This executive also happened to be a university coursemate of Yoshio Kojima, the director of Busycom. So one day Kojima hears... Oh, looking for someone in America? I know a nice guy. Bob Noyce. Except Bob Noyce had left Fairchild in 68 to found his new cozy company Intel, so it was Intel that Busycom came to with an absolutely crazy idea, and eyes full of hope. And Intel just did not know how to get rid of them. The crazy idea was this. Busycom wanted to release a whole range of office calculators with slightly different features better adapted for various businesses. Making each model a separate chip would have cost too much, so the plan was to make a generic calculator engine with a processor that could be programmed for specific functions of each model using nothing but a ROM chip. Intel had absolutely no clue how any of that should work, even though it had another client, Computer Terminal Corporation, that kept asking for something of that sort too. Luckily, Intel then hired another engineer from Fairchild, Federico Faggin, who knew what he was doing. With Faggin on the job, Intel was able to deliver the calculator system to Busycom early in 71. It was not one chip, but a chip set. ROM chips, designated 4001, contained the programming. RAM chips, labelled 4002, provided memory so that the calculator didn't forget what it was doing. 4003 was a shift register, another type of short-term memory. The Intel 4004 was the first commercial microprocessor. This was the big one. The rights to the 4004 were with Busycom. It did let Intel sell those chips to others in exchange for a discount, but that didn't save the Japanese company from going under in the same early 70s economic crisis that kicked Nintendo's light gun project in the gut. Meanwhile, in the USA, microprocessors and microcontrollers were coming out of woodwork. 1974 was a good year. Motorola released its MC6800 processor, soon to be featured in lots of games. Texas Instruments released its TMS-1000, a dirt-cheap microcontroller, $2 per piece if you buy in bulk, and TMS-1000 would also see many game applications. Realizing something was happening, Fairchild released its F8 processor in 75, and it would play a brief role in our story. Intel wasn't idle either. 4004 was soon followed by eight oh eight, yet not soon enough. The 808 was a parallel development, supposed to have been made for Computer Terminal Corporation, but Federico Faggin wasn't helping with this one, and the deadlines were missed so hard CTC had to release its, uh, thing using older technology. With the new experience from the calculator project, Intel was able to make the new chip happen, adding an 8-bit processor to the 4-bit 4004. Oh dear, the bit numbers. You know, the game industry is going to use them in marketing a lot, so let's get an idea of what those are while they're still small. They usually refer to the data width of the processor. As I said in the beginning of the episode, if you have a complex system of logic gates, it can be set up with terminals to receive data in binary form, and data width means pretty much how many bits the processor can receive in a single operating cycle to process and ship out. If you go from 4 bits to 8 bits, you can deal with more data, bigger numbers. And to a computer, everything is numbers, images, sounds. So a data width increase is generally associated with a big leap in performance. Now, it is possible to make a low data width processor take in a large number and do something with it, but it's going to be slow and games will be trying to avoid that. After the release of AT08, Federico Fagin, together with ex busicom engineer Masatoshi Shima, improved the design in every way imaginable, and that's how, in 1974, Intel released its major cheap hit, the at 80 But that wasn't the end of it, since late in 1974, Fagin left Intel and founded Zilog, the first company dedicated exclusively to microprocessors. Zilog released its first, the Z80, in 76. The Z80 was cheaper than Intel's 8080, yet faster. Even better, it could run programs written for the 8080, because the Z80 was an expansion of the earlier model and built up on top of its set of instructions and structure, what they call processor architecture. Having the same architecture does a lot to improve compatibility. Between different processor architectures, it's uh, very close to nil. Which is why, after the creative boom of the 70s ends, it will be harder and harder for new architectures to appear and survive, as the growing mountain of programs written for the great old ones will keep people stuck to them through sheer force of gravity. Now, we've been talking for a long time today without talking about games, and there are still many other processes and companies not yet covered, such as MOS Technology, which is apparently not the same as MOS Tech, but when we get to the arcade cabinets of the late 70s and early 80s, you can safely assume that inside them there is a Z80, or an 8080, or an MC6800 if you're feeling lucky. Before we get back to the arcades and the consoles, there is a new game platform I need to introduce, since the rise of microelectronics brought the world the microcomputer. While the so-called microcomputer revolution was scheduled for the middle of the decade, these compact devices that could fit onto or under your desk could be spotted here and there even in the early 70s. Though seeing a 1971 Kenback 1 computer, you wouldn't recognize it as such, as it had no keyboard, no display, not even a printer, and looked like a misplaced prop from a 50s sci-fi movie. Not many people got to see them, so let's talk about something more conventional. Computer Terminal Corporation's device, the processor for which Intel failed so hard to provide, was the Datapoint 2200. Its story began in 68 when an O. Roach got taken over by the idea to replace old teletypes with terminals the size of a typewriter, outfitted with a keyboard, and a TV screen instead of a printer. So Roach found like-minded people, raised money, and founded the company in San Antonio, Texas. To make the market for his product as broad as possible, He required that his engineers design it so that a terminal could be programmed to emulate almost any other kind of time-sharing terminal out there. When the engineers read deeper into the project, they realized something strange was up. The terminal would be able to operate as a programmable computer on its own, but shh, don't tell anyone. Making a self-sufficient desktop computer was the top-secret part of the business plan. Terminals? Everyone loves terminals. Investors love terminals. But a personal desktop computer was something so new they had to sneak it in under the radar. Due to Intel's incompetence, the Datapoint 2200 came out in 1970 without a single-chip central processing unit, with less advanced hardware imitating its functions. But the core principles of its operation, drafted in the late 60s, were embedded into that belated at 8 chip, which was expanded into the at 80 which would be the base for the Intel 8086, and the x86 architecture is still at the heart of the processors you find in most home computers and even video game consoles today. Yes, it is a horribly obsolete foundation people keep building on top of and digging new basements under, No, nobody can do much about it, since switching to a brand new processor architecture would mean rewriting all the software. Okay, getting to know the skeletons buried in the load-bearing walls of modern computing is fine, but we need to keep digging towards games. Oh, I know, the DataPoint series were not the only computer terminals out there. One of the others, also released in 1970, was the PDS-1 from Imlec Corporation. The PDS-1 was a graphical workstation with a big vector display oriented vertically like a sheet of paper. Vector displays built images out of vectors instead of pixels, and that was very good for engineering drawings. In a vector display, the electron beam doesn't scan the entire screen, and only hits the parts where the lines are drawn, creating simple, clean visuals without taxing the system too much. Now, I thought it would make using a light pen impossible, but you could connect a light pen and a pedal to the PDS1, and have fun creating and editing drawings like in that Sketchpad program from 1963. To make the graphics render at a possible speed, the terminal had a built-in graphical processor, in addition to its main one that was by itself comparable to a mid-sixties mini computer in performance. As a terminal connected to a mainframe, the PDS1 could do wonders. By itself, it was still decent. In the early 70s, a few of these terminals could be found at NASA Ames Research Center, where engineers were doing some design work on the Space Shuttle. Though I'm firmly convinced, a few of its staff referred to the place as NASA Games Research Center. A Don O'Brien there was busy with a project of great significance – Programming a computer simulator of an electromechanical arcade machine installed at the neighborhood to-go's sandwich barn. If he got it right, they could practice and get good at the game without spending any extra money. And then, they could head over to the to-go's, put one quarter into the coin slot, get a high enough score, and win a free sandwich. Only for a quarter. The plan was foiled when the Tugos got rid of its machine before anyone at NASA could get good enough to win. But what's a plan, right? Somebody make a heist movie about this. Call it It's Not Rocket Science. Around 73, other people started gamifying the terminals. Steve Colley and Howard Palmer. Colley wrote a program that drew a cube on the screen, and let you rotate it, and it even removed the back edges of the cube so that it looked like a solid three-dimensional object and not a wireframe. The cube alone was putting a strain on the system, but Steve wanted more. He wanted a 3D representation of a maze. That's when Howard Palmer suggested a trick that would simplify the task and make a 3D maze possible. Since this trick is going to be used by games well into the early 90s, I'm going to tell you about it. Three-dimensional graphics were not invented by any of these nerds. They were invented by different nerds, classical artists. They figured out perspective, light and shadow, atmospheric effects, focus, all the tools necessary to make our stupid brains believe that an arrangement of shapes on a flat surface is a window into a world with depth and volume. The development of computer 3D graphics is a journey towards automating those tools by means of machines only capable of processing numbers. It's not an easy trip, and naturally in their first steps, computers needed a lot of help. Restricting movement was the first crutch. Forget about looking up and down, and also about any kind of vertical shifts. The maze had to be laid flat, and the point of view had to stay at a set height above the ground. Horizontal movement was not free either. Turns were possible only in 90-degree increments, and moving was reduced to hopping between points on a grid. And that grid happened to align perfectly with the centers of tiles making up the maze. Straight hallways, right-angle bends, D-junctions. Also helping a little was that a vector display could only do lines, and was not expected to fill any areas with color. So all the player in the maze would see would be lines where the nearest walls, the ceiling, and the floor met. If you saw two horizontal lines, that meant you were facing a wall. A hallway stretching ahead needed more lines, but no matter how you moved or turned, your point of view would always be aligned with the axis of the hallway. The vanishing point where the lines converged would always be in the same place. The only extra thing the computer would need to recalculate would be how far to terminate the hallway lines with another wall and where to interrupt these lines for passages branching away ahead. And that's how this early case of game 3D graphics was reduced to automating a very specific instance of drawing perspective. And it worked and looked okay at the time. Moving in large steps wasn't that big of an issue either, thanks to a feature shared by many early screens. When the computer stopped drawing a line, it did not disappear immediately, but took a moment to fade out from the phosphor of the screen itself. Shortcomings of display technology would be helping game developers a lot, even in the 80s. So, Steve Colley constructed his maze drawing system, and he called the game Maze. It challenged players with mazes they needed to escape. New mazes were easy to create, yet the game got old quickly. Mazes are like that. Not amazing. In 74, someone in that research group suggested putting two players into the same maze. It wasn't possible with one terminal, but they found a way to connect two directly with a cable into a simple network. By the way, the 70s are also the time when computer networking is on the rise, all kinds of things are tried out, and the data point terminals from earlier got involved in an early commercial network later in the decade. Anyway, with the two PDS-1s linked... Two players could be in the maze at the same time, which no one would have noticed had they remained in visible abstract presences with only their coordinates and facing to describe them. But that's boring, so the players were given visible avatars to represent their position in the maze. Balls. A ball is very easy to draw, after all. It's just a circle. To make the facing clear, they made the front side of the ball an eyeball. Okay, now Maze was a game about two eyeballs hopping around in a labyrinth. What will they think of next? Next, someone suggested letting the eyeballs shoot at one another to eliminate the opponent and get points. Maze became Maze War, and it would go down in history as the precursor of first-person shooter games. And again, like Tank, it's Deathmatch. It seems that Dungeons & Dragons... Was the only new thing promoting cooperative play in 1974. Since the object of the game had changed and escaping mazes was no longer the point, Maze War got a new feature the ability to call up the map of the maze onto the screen and see your position in it, but not the opponent's position, obviously. Then Steve Colley came up with and added another new thing the peak function. Imagine you're entering a junction. And before you even had the time to turn, your opponent, who's been waiting for you behind the corner in an ambush, fires a shot, gets a point, and you get to reappear somewhere else on the map. That's just not fair. The peek function allowed players to peek around a corner ahead, somehow without exposing their precious eyeball to whomever might be waiting them. With this, ambushing became tricky. One of the people among the NASA Maze War research group, Greg Thompson, then moved on to MIT and, of course, he brought the game with him. Over there, the program got worked over and adapted to run in a larger network. The MIT version continued to spread, making it to places like Stanford University and a few companies specializing in computer development. With its expanded network support, Maze War was capable of rendering entire offices inoperative for days, employees obsessed with hunting down their colleagues. The late 70s and early 80s also brought increased university access to the ARPANET, the direct predecessor of the modern internet. Now, Back in the day, the system still had a lot of trappings of its government and military origins. It was supposed to be used only for government business. Be serious, no emails on private matters, no organising meetups, no advertising, and these regulations, clearly written by someone who'd never been on the internet, were followed about as strictly as you might expect. At some point, not sure what year exactly, Maze War was adapted for the ARPANET, and the era of college students battling their peers from across the country online began. Parallel to this, May's War was getting a facelift at one of those companies it spread to from MIT, Xerox. Back in 69, Xerox, the photocopia company, established its Park, Palo Alto Research Center. Over the following years, the center researched and developed a whole pile of new things in the fields of computer interface, graphics, networking, and obviously, printing. Whenever someone in an office types up a document on their screen and sends it over the network to the office laser printer, they're following a chain of procedures worked out at Xerox PARC. And they're doing this using the interface developed at Xerox PARC. The center was established when the mother of all demos was the talk of the town. And Engelbart's online system, as it was called, along with a few other systems, inspired Xerox engineers to create something similar but better. Their creation was unveiled on March the 1st, 1973, as the Xerox Alto computer. It was almost a desktop computer as we know them, except it didn't have a microprocessor, and the processing unit was a massive box of circuitry you had to hide under the desk. On the desk, you'd have the mouse, the keyboard, and the black-and-white display in portrait orientation. On the display, all the information you worked with was presented as if the screen was itself a virtual desktop, where you could arrange whatever you were working with in a convenient way. Documents were files you could organize into folders, you could doodle some pictures, or press virtual buttons with your mouse cursor to use the different functions of the system. You can find a 70s ad for the Alto on YouTube, by the way. One of the people working at Xerox PARC and heavily involved in all the research there was Alan Curtis Kay. Say, do you remember Seymour Papert and his work on a child-friendly programming language for fun robots? Well, in the late 60s, Kay met Papert, learned about his work and the educational theory behind it, and became an advocate of the concept. Then Kay added a twist. Not just a programming language for children but an entire computer for children. He published a paper, a proposal for such a device, in 1972, and according to it, a computer for children was supposed to be... a tablet computer. Yeah, just a small standalone 9x12-inch unit with a flat screen and a pressure-sensitive keyboard lacking mechanical parts, but making clicking noises through a speaker whenever you pressed a button. A stylus for interacting with the screen itself would also be included. While building such a device in 72 was pretty much impossible, Kay readily pointed out that even in the early 70s, the technologies necessary for such a gadget already existed as prototypes or even as commercial products. Those microprocessors, for example, were just what the doctor ordered when you needed to put together a compact portable computer. And as for where he got the flat-screen idea... Wait for the next episode. Just because this tablet, K called Dynabook, couldn't be produced straight away didn't mean no work could be done on the software it would need to operate. The graphical user interface of the Alto computer and the programming language used to build it were made with Dynabook in mind. The buttons on the screen you could press and make stuff happen The visual metaphor turning your computer's memory into a physical space with data and programs represented by icons you could manipulate. With this, computers aren't so scary anymore. Just point at whatever you want and click. Alto's interface was then borrowed by a few companies we'll be introducing in a moment and became the foundation for the interface of modern home computers and tablets and smartphones. So, if you've ever wondered how come kids master a tablet so quickly, it's because the way we interact with screens was literally invented and developed for children. Now, Maze War, when it infiltrated Xerox offices in 76 or 77, did not have much use for the mouse. The eyeball was mainly piloted by a key set, a separate pad with a handful of keys people used the same way you'd use keyboard shortcuts. Engelbart had one of those for the mother of all demos. All the cool kids had to get one too. Ported to the Alto, Maze War took full advantage of the increased screen quality and resolution by displaying the reference map of the maze on the screen below the main view so that this, what we now call, mini-map was always there informing the player of their location. And only their location. A few programmers at Xerox thought they were smarter than everyone else. All the source code of all the programs on the Xerox network was openly available in a repository, and those smart guys used it to create a secret special version of Maze War for themselves, with a built-in cheat system. Their minimap showed everyone's positions. Eventually, people found out, and I don't think it would have taken them long to realize that some guys had an uncanny ability to surprise and destroy all opponents. When the hack came to light, measures were taken. Mazewar's source code in the repository was encrypted. You could still run already compiled official copies of the game, but compiling a special one for yourself was out of the question. Reportedly, at the time, Mazewar's code was the only one in Xerox repository to get an encryption. Wanna check out the code of our groundbreaking interface and networking research? No problem. You wanna look at the code for Mazewar? Huh, you'll need to talk to one of the people in charge, and you'd better have a good reason. Nobody likes hackers in games. The Alto, Datapoint, and Imlac terminals were all just a part of a general industry-wide shift from dumb terminals, useless without a mainframe connection, to smart terminals with their own processors and some capability for autonomous operation and networking with similar machines. There was also a push towards miniaturization. In 75, IBM presented its 5100 series of portable computers. At the time, portable meant you could drive it around in your car seat instead of the back of your pickup truck. An IBM fifty one hundred weighed over twenty kilograms. Impressive as this hardware may have been, it was not the microcomputer revolution. The reason was simple. The price tags. The money it took to buy one of these computers was enough to cover years of college tuition or buy a car, or several cars. The most basic, cut-down models cost somewhere in the region of $10,000, give or take a couple of thousand, and then the options would easily double the price. With Xerox, it was even worse. The Alto never went commercial and was supplied only to other big companies in the field. The top management had little faith in the project, although Alto's follow-up, Xerox Star, was released in 1981 with an improved and almost modern-looking interface. A single terminal of the star would cost over $16,000, but to make it work, you'd need to buy another $50,000 worth of hardware. Had the market been governed entirely by these companies, the processing power would have remained in the hands of the few with deep pockets. Luckily, a revolution happened. But not for some noble reasons. No, it's just that some realized they could make money by selling cheaper computers to many more people. It started, again, with calculators. No, actually, it started with the space race, which, if you remember, was triggered by the Sputnik launch. Over the 60s, rocket engineering was making news, and a side effect of this was a growing interest in model rockets. One of the guys caught up in the fad was Forrest Mims. Even as he was deployed by the US Air Force to Vietnam, he kept launching rockets on the outskirts of Saigon. During a war. Once, he launched one off the roof of his apartment, and the military police rushed to the place in a panic to warn everyone about a rocket attack. Another time, his launch site at a racetrack was checked out by an armed helicopter, scattering all the Vietnamese children, helping the crazy American. Forrest's tinkering involved more than just launches. He rigged his rockets with flashing lights built out of transistors and LEDs, light-emitting diodes, kind of new at the time, so that he could film and observe the rotation of his models in flight precisely. Uh, By the way, this served the same purpose big black-and-white patterns painted on real rockets do. Another use Mims found for the LEDs was a travel aid for the blind. He built a device which emitted powerful infrared flashes, picked up the reflections, and produced a sound through a hearing aid. The closer the object in front of the device was, the louder the sound. MIMS tried it out in two schools for the blind in Vietnam, and it worked at a range of a few meters, but the device never saw a commercial release. All this gadgetry ultimately landed MIMS in the Air Force Weapons Development Lab. There he ran into professional engineers such as Henry Edward Roberts. In 69, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Roberts, MIMS, and two other guys founded a company they called MITS, micro instrumentation and telemetry systems, specializing in small electronics kits for model rockets. It turned out there wasn't much demand for those. Then Forrest Mims left the weapons lab to earn an honest living working as a parking lot attendant, while discovering he was actually a really good technical writer, and he has since written a ton of books that got people into electronic engineering. Episode one seven one of the AMP Hour podcast features an interview with him if you're interested. While Forrest was writing his first book in the attendant booth, Edward Roberts was trying to make the electronics company happen. The first successful product was the MITS-1816, a calculator released late in 71. It did not cost $400. No, a kit for you to build yourself cost $180, and for another 100 the device would be mailed to you pre-assembled. This was nice, but in a few years big companies would flood the market with cheaper, mass-produced calculators. A lot of promotion for the products of MITS was done in competing Popular Electronics and Radio Electronics magazines thanks to connections made back in the Rocket Kit years. And Forrest Mims was writing for them as well. In 73 and 74, Radio Electronics presented to its readers two fascinating DIY builds, Don Lancaster's TV typewriter and Jonathan Titus's Mark VIII. The TV typewriter let you type on a keyboard and watch letters appear on a TV screen, while the Mark VIII was a computer built around Intel 8008. Neither of these were released as finished products. You bought a bundle of blueprints and schematics, bought your own parts, and built the devices from scratch, including a handmade keyboard. Well, it was possible to use a keyboard of something else, like a teletype terminal, and you could order assembled circuit boards, but the rest was on you. That's when the editors of Popular Electronics decided to top this by presenting a more complete microcomputer package. Ed Roberts and Mitz were up for the task and put together a prototype built around the new Intel 8080 processor later in 74. It got lost in the mail on the way to the Popular Electronics offices. MITS had to send an empty shell to take pictures of for the article while building a second prototype and sending it not through a company that was going bankrupt. Finally, by the end of the year, everything was ready and the article appeared in print informing the readers that MITS was taking orders for its new microcomputer. The original name had been PE8, but they needed a better one, And it came from a 12-year-old daughter of the magazine's technical director. She was watching Star Trek and said, why don't you call it Altair? That's where the Enterprise is going in this episode. And so it was that Mitz offered to the world the Altair 8800, priced at less than $500. Okay, okay, for that money you'd only get the base system kit for home assembly, A pre-built unit would cost extra. With options like more memory, it would cost even more. It didn't come with a display either, but you could get a teletype. But even with every single extra thrown in, the Altair 8800 was an order of magnitude cheaper than any other microcomputer. And the orders started coming in. Mims, who was writing manuals for MITS, told his friend Ed he was expecting the computer to sell only a few hundred units, based on the earlier calculator sales. The orders numbered in thousands. And that's for a computer for which the default mode of output was blinking lights on the front panel, and programming which was done by a set of switches like on a 50s mainframe. But it was literally the only cheap computer on the market for most of 75. The January 75 issue of Popular Electronics that announced the Altair to the world in December 74 was read far and wide. For example, in the state of Massachusetts, where two guys you may have heard of, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, were trying to make their own electronics company turn a profit. Not very well. On learning about the new offering from MITS, they got the idea that the age of home microcomputers was nigh, And those computers would need some software, and they could make money selling it. As history has shown time and time again, the shortest way to riches is to make people pay you for the work done by somebody else. That's why Gates and Allen decided to rip off BASIC. The language had matured over the decade of its existence, it had millions of users, a recognizable name, it had even gone international. In the early 70s, Thomas Kurtz, one of the co-creators, received a letter of thanks all the way from Siberia. Hundreds of BASIC programs had been published in magazines and books like 101 BASIC computer games. The hard work of introducing a brand new language and getting it widely adopted had already been done. All that was left was to port BASIC to the Altair. A trifle. At least that's what Gates and Allen thought when they contacted MITS offering a BASIC package early in 75. Ed Roberts was interested, because going from programming by switches to a high-level language sounded pretty nice. What followed was a series of amusing miscommunications, as both sides were trying to pretend they were more experienced and larger than they actually were, while Gates and Allen still had no functional BASIC, and MITS still hadn't produced a version of the Altair with expanded memory, necessary to run that non-existent BASIC. By late spring 75, Altair BASIC was ready and became a commercial product. Gates & Allen founded a new company specializing in microcomputer software, calling it Microsoft. A very bold name to the world outside of computer enthusiasts. More insecure people would have called their outfit, uh, I don't know, Epic Mega Soft, but would be silly enough to do that. The transfer from mainframes to microcomputers was not painless for BASIC. The way it worked originally was this. The BASIC program you typed in or loaded from a tape would be stored in the mainframe's operating memory. The compiler, the program that translated your code, would also be in the memory. The compiler would create a new version of your program that the system could understand, and stored it also in the memory. Only then the computer would run your program. This method required a lot of memory, which the Altair 8800 could not provide. Memory cost a lot back in the day. So sacrifices had to be made. Microsoft cut a few secondary features for its main release and also created a special version of BASIC for the cheaper Altair models, which was cut down so hard it lacked a few mathematical functions and the random number generator. It was mostly useless. But the biggest savings came from switching from a compiler to an interpreter. An interpreter does the same thing a compiler does translates your code for the computer, but instead of processing the entire program in one go, it does it line by line. Interpreter line, execute it, next line please. A full compiled version of your stuff never materializes in the memory. Savings! And when home computer BASIC really took off, they were even able to release the interpreter baked into ROM chips so that its memory footprint was reduced further. All this is nice, but you may have already realized there is a trade-off. Whenever you run your program, you actually run two programs now. Your masterpiece and the interpreter. This is how BASIC became slow, at least for game purposes, and it's going to remain painfully slow, and the addition of graphical functions a few years later won't make it any faster. The rising star of the Altair became a guiding light for the emerging personal computer industry already by the end of 75. Helping the process was a very convenient expansion system, The computer had numerous identical slots for expansion boards, circuit boards with an edge connector, and they could contain anything. Extra memory, controllers for tape readers, controllers and ports for connecting other peripheral hardware. You could stick in a board with another processor. Then, seeing the commercial success of the Altair, some companies and enthusiasts thought to make new expansion boards, while others decided to make their own computers, but maintain compatibility with Altair's expansions, because, well, there were so many of them. And this is how MIT, a company founded to make electronics for model rockets, ended up setting the hardware standards in the home computer industry for the entire second half of the 70s. But what about games? I can hear some of you asking. Well, luckily, talking about the earliest home computer games in detail is a pointless endeavor. Between 75 and around 77, there wasn't really a big market for software. Computers were bought by dedicated hobbyists, the exact kind of people, who not only could write a simple game or utility program they needed themselves, in an evening, but would also have fun doing it. Someone, somewhere, must have made a few copies of their game and sold it to friends and acquaintances, becoming the first person ever to release a home computer game commercially, but it was a non-event. The games from this period that we know of were variations on the contents of 101 basic computer games and other simple mainframe amusements. It was similar to the games of the 50s. The main achievement was to run a game, any game, not make a good one. There wasn't much memory for anything, Microsoft Basic was slow, sound effects were either impossible or difficult to produce, and as for the graphics... The best most early home computers could do was show items from a standardized character set in fixed positions on the screen. That's if a screen was even an option. It was like a typewriter, but worse. Those character sets, all their letters and punctuation marks, had to be stored somewhere, and that somewhere was a ROM chip. But ROM chips don't grow on trees, so to save money manufacturers would use smaller, incomplete character sets, Even in the late 70s, you could often tell someone had a more advanced, pricey computer model if you looked at their screen and saw lowercase letters. Yes, you had to pay extra for the privilege. Fortunately, things were changing. In the issue of Popular Electronics, immediately following the one that announced the Altair, there was an article about the Cyclops, a simple black-and-white digital camera designed by Terry Walker. While that piece of news was making the rounds, Walker and his friends got their hands on an Altair and started tinkering. At first, the idea was to make an expansion board to connect the camera to the computer and convert the signal for a TV output. Then they realized that TV output, maybe even in color, was a pretty nice thing to have by itself. A year later, an article about the fruit of their labors appeared, again, in Popular Electronics. The hardware was called the TV Dazzler, and it took up two expansion slots. It arose so much interest that its creators started a company, Chromemco, and began to produce the Dazzler, making it the first commercial video card for a home computer. It offered additional processing power for drawing color graphics and a TV converter. To show off the dazzling capabilities of the Dazzler, it was sold with a whole bunch of software pushing it to its limits. You know, games. Luckily, a manual for Dazzler pack-in games from 1977 has been preserved online. Let's see what Chromemco had to offer. Oh, but before we start, the company began to sell four-button joystick controllers with built-in speakers at some point, so many listed games relied on them as cross-promotion. The first game on the list is Chase, about a cross and a circle controlled by joysticks chasing one another on the screen until the time runs out. Yeah, it's Ralph Baier's prototype from a decade earlier. After this come Dazzle Doodle and Dazzlemation. Dazzle Doodle is a color drawing program. Use a joystick to move a cursor on the screen, press button 2 for red, 3 for green and 4 for blue or press buttons together to get a mixed color. Button 1 erases the picture or, if pressed with a color button, fills the screen with that color. Dazzle Mation also lets you draw with a cursor on the screen but using a keyboard and hello there early keyboard controls. You press N to move up, M to move down comma to move left and period to move right, and diagonals take a special ritual. I think the idea was that you recorded a sequence of movements of your cursor, switching its color on the way as it left a trail, and then you could save that sequence and have the computer play it for you repeatedly. There was a sample animation included called Magenta Martini, without a drunk mouse, I suppose. Next, we have Dogfight, which is a two-player, two-dimensional flight simulator. You get a side view of an arena, the players controlling two planes hit the throttle buttons, take off, and do a lot of loops trying to shoot each other with machine guns. There's a basic physics model, so if you let your speed drop, you go down. The game may have been inspired by Allied Leisure's 1976 cabinet Ace, where not only could you shoot down your opponent's plane, but also its bailed-out pilot parachuting to safety. Then comes the four-dimensional tic-tac-toe. And no, it's not a mislabeled three-dimensional variant. The manual dedicates a couple of pages to explain how exactly a 4x4x4x4 playing area is unwrapped onto the screen, and then it goes on to explain for another three pages how the game is actually played, making it one of the two longest sections of the brochure. And at the very end there is a note that to play you need both a TV and a teletype or a computer display for messages from the computer player. It's 1977 and we're already at video cards taking up multiple expansion slots and multi-screen gaming. Whatever will they think of next. Next in a book we see Gotcha. No, not that Gotcha, thankfully. This game, also alternatively titled Gotcha, 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 14 exclamation marks, was a less perverse affair. Two players controlled their dots, red and blue, on the screen as they moved without stopping, leaving a solid trail behind them. Whenever you crashed into the outer wall or a trail, your opponent got a point and the game reset for a new round. Some of you may be thinking that this sounds a lot like the light cycles in the 1982 movie Tron, and yes, Tron had to steal the light cycles from somewhere. This gotcha itself was a rehash of a late 1976 arcade game Blockade, designed at and released by Gremlin Industries. Only Blockade wasn't about a red and a blue dot, but about two growing snakes. After this bit of action, Chromamka suggests that the users sit back and marvel at a program called Kaleidoscope that drew on the screen colorful patterns similar to what you'd see in a real kaleidoscope. There are no controls, the demonstration is fully automatic. The Light Show is followed by Life, an adaptation of the Game of Life developed by mathematician John Horton Conway, who died in 2020 of the highly fashionable coronavirus. The game's description was first published in 1970 in Scientific American, the same periodical that a few years later would inspire Atari's Grand Track 10. Life is a zero-player game, a cellular automaton. The player sets the initial conditions of the simulation, presses go, and watches it develop with no further input. It's all about cells. If there are too many cells together, they die out. If there are many cells next to an empty space, a new cell appears. Round by round, the situation on the screen changes. Some groups of cells begin to move, some vanish, some start cycling through stable forms. The Dazzler version used different colors to represent new, dead, and remaining cells on the screen. The initial placement of cells was set using a cursor controlled by the keyboard. W for up, A for left, S for right, and Z for down. Credit for getting over 50% of the modern-day WASD control scheme right. Continuing in the alphabetical order, the brochure moves on to Space War. Do I need to introduce Space War? No, I don't. It's the same old game, with a few options, like making the Star War player rockets to the corners of the screen instead of destroying them. Then comes Tank War, which is Atari's tank. The final entry in the Chromemco Dazzler Games catalog is track. I'm certain it's a knockoff of something, but not whether of a video game cabinet or a toy. The titular track is a spiral path that gets narrower as you approach the center. The object of the game is to guide a dot controlled by a joystick all the way along that track without touching the walls. If you do, a loud noise comes out of the speaker inside the joystick. I'm sure you can think of a few games like this, in digital form or in physical one, with a wire track and a rod to move through it. So that's the TV Dazzler games of 1977, some of the first pack-in games for a video card. Home computers are rapidly catching up, from barely being able to run late 60s mainframe basic classics in 75, they've advanced to imitating contemporary arcade cabinets. A lot of people involved in developing and selling home computers, their expansions and peripherals, and their software in the late 70s were all part of the same community, Homebrew Computer Club. It was founded hot on the heels of the Altair's release in March 75 by Gordon French, a computer engineer with a garage suitable for meetings, and Fred Moore, a computer political activist. The club's extensive membership roles included, say, Steve Wozniak, and this definitely helped him get his own computer kit designed, built, and tested in 76, which led to the foundation of Apple. Among other early members was Bob Albrecht, who in the early 70s had started People's Computer Company, the PCC, offering a newsletter and a center where they promoted educational use of computers and brought access to computers, and the new club was very receptive to the idea. Adjacent to this crowd, though not herself a member, I believe, was Liza Loop. In 75, she, with the help of like-minded people, founded a couple of Loop Centres, with Loop standing for Learning Options Open Portal. Like the PCC Center, those were places with time-sharing terminals where people, mostly children, who didn't have access to computers in their daily lives could come and get acquainted with the wonderful world of modern technology, use it, learn something. They also loaded terminals into pickup trucks and toured schools with computer classes. As Liza put it in a 2015 interview, I thought that these things would infiltrate society, as they did. There were going to be two kinds of people in the world in the future, the kind of people who knew about computers and computing and how to control them, and the people who were controlled by them, End quote. This was not just about satisfying folk's curiosity. It was about freedom. Steve Wozniak learned about all this in 75 and was impressed. He himself happened to be all for more computers and education. So in early 76, he presented Liza with a circuit board, which turned out to be the first Apple computer. Literally, Apple One, serial number one. It wasn't a complete computer, she still needed to source a case, a power supply, a monitor, a keyboard and an expansion card to connect a tape reader, but the rest of the computer was there, and that's how Apple started selling them, really. Speaking of selling, according to Liza, Wozniak told her that he wanted the unit to be a gift, But his partner, that is Steve Jobs, was against it. So Wozniak had to buy his own firstborn from Apple to give it away. Unfortunately, it took Apple One number 1 20 minutes to load the basic interpreter, then it would work for a few minutes, overheat and crash, making it very difficult to use during a 45-minute class. After months of attempts at troubleshooting, they just gave up. The computer became a museum piece, while the Loop Center got a prototype Apple II. Those actually worked, came assembled, and offered color graphics. The processing power to the people vibe Homebrew Computer Club was radiating resulted in an amusing incident in 75. When the members got their hands on the Altair Basic, they, in the spirit of sharing, made many copies of the software, spread it, and made even more copies. Bill Gates, of course, let it slide with his trademark kind smile. No, no, he didn't. Bill Gates wrote and aggressively mailed out a whiny open letter rant complaining about software piracy and how it hurts his business and the industry. The fact that Microsoft was seeing business mainly because they adapted an already existing decade-old programming language, keeping even its name, was not mentioned. The response to the letter ranged from pirate copies are the only reason anyone knows about your tiny company to, oh yeah, we can write our own BASIC interpreter and make it free to use. And they did. It's tiny BASIC. Somehow, inexplicably, Microsoft did not go bankrupt. The company continued to adapt BASIC for home computers of different makes. And by a hook or by a crook, most late 70s models had some kind of Microsoft BASIC interpreter built in or sold separately or both. Technically Altair BASIC was developed under contract with Mits and they were supposed to have a say in who got to use it, but Microsoft weaseled out of the contract. Remember kids, to get rich you need to be well off to begin with, start selling something that is 90% other people's work, cut all ties and obligations to the people who made your last 10% possible, and always, always, always be a hypocrite. BASIC was spreading yet again. The book BASIC Computer Games got a reprint in 78 to accommodate the new microcomputer iterations of the language well, some of them anyway, they were all just a little bit different, and more advanced programs for one variant didn't necessarily work with the others. In addition, Apple freely supplied with its units a completely different basic dialect created by Wozniak specifically to write games with it. Steve's entire design objective for the Apple II was to make a system that could in software recreate the breakout he had previously designed with transistors and insomnia. Some of you may be wondering at this point, how come these nobodies get to have a computer industry? What about the big companies like IBM and others with their smart and portable terminals? What are they doing about home microcomputers? Well, nothing? Cheap home computers were in no one's business plans. I mean, why bother? Those are calculators with delusions of grandeur, the profit margins are slim, and the only target audience are a few thousand nerds across America. Mainframes and time sharing are where it's at. Businesses and universities and schools are not going to stop needing those. Was that? It's 1978 and Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium has placed an order with Apple for 500 Apple II computers to distribute to schools? Crap. Yeah, the glorified calculators started nibbling at big industry slices of the pie chart and a major role in this was played by Mech that we're already familiar with from the Oregon Trail story in episode 1.7. Over the 70s, Mech had been running time-sharing systems, but in late 77 or early 78, one of Mech instructors, Kent Kerberg, visited California and ran into an Apple II. It was love at first sight. There it was, a simple-to-use desktop computer that had everything they needed in a school terminal, but without a mainframe or a five-digit price tag. Mac did not immediately jump into Apple's arms. There were alternatives. The same 1977 saw the releases of the PET from Commodore International and the TRS-80 from Tandy Corporation. They were cheaper than the Apple II, and in fact it was the TRS-80 that dominated the American microcomputer market until the early 80s. But after months of evaluation and proposals, the people from Minnesota took a liking to Apple's offer and ordered a few hundred units, then a few thousand, then tens of thousands. In the meantime, Mech was converting its educational mainframe classics to the new BASIC. This included Oregon and, among others, Lemonade Stand, a game originally created by Bob Jameson in 73. It was nothing special mechanically, another one of the economic simulators relying on randomization like the Sumerian game. Only this time you managed your Lemonade Stand, stocked up, set the prices, placed ads. It was simple, more relatable than ancient empire building, and fairly inescapable, as many packages of mech games and free Apple software would come with it for years. So Lemonade Stand ended up being somewhat influential, as it, along with Oregon, was often one of the first computer games future game developers played. Home computers were getting connected up, too. In the 70s and through the 80s, this was done by means of BBS, bulletin board systems. The first known one was Computer Memory in Berkeley, California. It was a set of terminals spread out over an area, all connected by phone lines to the same mainframe. For a fee, people could come up to a terminal and use it as an electronic bulletin board, posting public notices and searching through ones already there. Computer Memory was the work of several members of Resource One, yet another community dedicated to giving computer access to the people, much like Liza Loop's team and the People's Computer Company. When the personal computer market started growing in the late 70s, commercial BBS offerings became feasible, and in 79, CompuServe invited anyone, with a modem and the money, to connect to its BBS and exchange information. In the following years, other providers entered the scene, dedicated software for convenient BBS access would appear, modems would become less terrible, And already in the early 80s, people could download games from BBSs, totally free. Well, that free had a price. Data transfer rates were abysmal, connections were unstable, and service providers charged not for the data, but at an hourly rate. That's why BBS software usually worked by connecting to the board, downloading new messages or uploading yours, and then disconnecting, and you'd be reading or writing offline. People were not permanently online yet, unless they had a spare phone line and money to burn. I'm going to put the microcomputer industry aside for now, for the most part, and return to it in the beginning of the next season, when I take a closer look at these home systems and their capabilities and their effect on games. It's better to do it then, because most of these computers survive into the 80s, and the 80s personal computer landscape has a lot to show. At the moment, we need to go back to Homebrew Computer Club and get acquainted with a member we've almost overlooked. That wouldn't do. Not again. He has already been overlooked so hard that an official recognition of his work by the game industry came only a month before he died in 2011. So, there was this guy in the club who was impossible to miss whenever he showed up. He was impossible to miss in the photos from the time. It was impossible to miss years and decades later at the meetups. His name was Gerald A. Lawson, or just Jerry Lawson, and Jerry Lawson was black. Homebrew Computer Club and computer engineering in general were a very white community. How did Jerry get there? Luckily for everyone, he was interviewed in 2009, and the transcript is up on the Vintage Computing and Gaming website. The interviewer opens by describing his surprise at learning there was someone black in computer engineering circles at the time, and he wasn't the only one surprised. As Jerry recalled, in 1996 he ran into a former Atari colleague, and the guy was gobsmacked to discover that Jerry Lawson, the Jerry Lawson he'd spoken to on the phone, the Jerry Lawson Nolan Bushnell and Alan Alcorn had been talking about, was black. Why would Nolan Bushnell and Alan Alcorn be talking about Jerry? Well, he saw computer space when it was new. He was around in the Pong days, too, hanging out with them, listening to their troubles. They told him crafty kids were zapping the coin slots of the cabinets or sticking wires into them to trigger the mechanism and get free plays. When Jerry built his own arcade cabinet for a pizza parlor in 75, he designed a defense system where a microprocessor checked whether whatever was tickling the coin slot was hitting the right switches with the same timing as a real coin did. Obviously, the main purpose of the chip was to run the game, and Lawson's Demolition Derby, unrelated to Exidy's, was one of the first cabinets with microprocessors. The processor used in it was the Fairchild F8, An obvious choice, seeing as Jerry was working at Fairchild Semiconductor. In 73 or 74, he interviewed some guy named uh, Steve Wozniak for an engineering position there, and was not impressed. Later, he ran into Steve at Homebrew Computer Club, saw the beginning of Apple, and personally knew the guy who made the Apple II possible, Armas Clifford Marculla Jr., who gave jobs in Wozniak money. Much welcomed because the original Apple computer kits brought nowhere near enough to cover all the development costs. The job at Fairchild had its perks. Early in a decade, Jerry was given a PDP-8, possibly written off. He got it to work, added various tape readers, and assembled a nice rack of computer hardware. One day, some people from DEC, the manufacturer of the PDPs, contacted him and said something like... Mr. Lawson, you've got the only functional PDP-8 west of the Mississippi. We kinda need it for some classes. We'll pay to upgrade it to required specifications, but could we, you know, use it? And that's how DEC, the company that had supplied computers to MIT and Stanford, ended up giving some classes in Jerry Lawson's garage. But how did he end up a computer engineer in the first place? Gerald Lawson was born in 1940 in New York, in Queens. His father was a longshoreman, but in between his hours at the docks, he took interest in sciences and encouraged it in his son. Quite possibly because Jerry's grandfather had been a physicist by education, but being black, the best job he was able to land with his physicist credentials was one of a postmaster. Jerry's mother must have worked in education, as she knew exactly what kind of schools to pick for her son. As Jerry jokes, his mother invented bussing. Bussing is... Um... Racial segregation in the United States did not disappear overnight, even as various racist laws began to get repealed. Some walls, even not legally there, persisted in other forms, for example, income levels and property values. There'd be neighborhoods that had been receiving proper government funding for decades, populated mainly by reasonably well-off white residents who could get a job they had the education for, and their children would go to schools with good teachers and equipment, and years down the line maybe even with time-sharing access, so that they could bang all the buffalo they wanted. And then there were districts where all those other people could afford to live. So even when segregation in education was no longer officially legal, black and white kids would still be going to different schools in different areas. Busing was the US government's attempt to diversify and desegregate education by sending school buses farther away and mixing students from different neighborhoods. Obviously, I cannot say how well this attempt to force people to intermingle worked, I wasn't there, but it did have some effects, Some started to hide their kids from the system and the plebs in private schools, creating new segregation lines. But Jerry Lawson's mom was doing it before it was cool, in the mid-50s, just as it became legal for black kids to go to white schools. And for a few years, Jerry was able to attend a really great place, though they had to give a phony address to enroll. There, teachers actually encouraged children to pursue their dreams, to be somebody, instead of telling them they wouldn't amount to anything in their lives, as teachers in black schools often did. In this fertile environment, Jerry's interest in sciences blossomed. His first choice was chemistry. One year, he wanted an atomic energy lab kit for Christmas, but it cost $100, and after some deliberation, Jerry's mother told him they couldn't afford it. But she got him a radio receiver, and that in turn got Jerry Lawson into electronics. So Jerry was not coming from a family that could just drop $20,000 on a computer to play a single game, and his family could not send him to Harvard, where he'd be able to use a taxpayer-funded computer to develop his basic, as certain Bill and Paul had. But the Lawson family did their best as much as they could. His mom used to give Jerry an allowance to buy radio parts. And then she disappears from the story, as she died at a very young age. But Jerry Lawson kept going. He had received a radio operator license in his teens, made and sold his own walkie-talkies, fixed TV sets, worked as an engineer at a radio station. And again, some of the people who had heard him over the radio were astounded to learn that he was black when they met him. Jerry's being secretly black was a running gag of his entire life. Now, he did go to college, a couple of them even, but most of his electronics knowledge and skills were self-taught. Little by little, he worked and learned all the way to joining Fairchild Semiconductor in 1970, already familiar even with computers and programming. In 75, when Jerry built his arcade cabinet, the management was openly not pleased. Mr. Lawson, we're a serious business! But in private, they asked him if he wanted to help develop games for the company. In secret, Jerry would still have his regular boss, while on the games front he reported directly to a vice president of Fairchild. His first task in this was to go to Connecticut and see if the guys at some company called Alpex had anything good to offer. Alpex was a business that had split from AMF, American Machine and Foundry, a bowling alley company. It didn't go well. In 74, having very little to lose, Alpex let one of its last remaining engineers, Wallace Kirchner, develop a video game console. They even hired another engineer, Lawrence Haskell, to help make games for it. The project's codename was Remote Access Video Entertainment, or RAVEN. The big idea was that this new system would have games implemented not in hardware or logical circuitry, but in software, as programs run by a microprocessor. No one in the game industry was doing it in 74. Soon, the Kirschner and Haskell duo had a few games like Pong, Hockey, a doodling on the screen program like everyone in Dazzler would have years later, and a shooting gallery thing where you rotated a cannon to fire at moving targets. But how to switch between all these titles? They figured that the best storage medium would be a ROM. They used pretty expensive, erasable, programmable ROM chips in development. But you're not going to have a regular person swap chips inside a console, no. So what they came up with was to mount the ROM onto a small circuit board with an edge connector, just like the expansion boards of the not-yet-released Altair, then put this board into a plastic case and the user was supposed to stick it into a big, rugged, robust slot. What they came up with was a video game cartridge. Funny, but Hewlett-Packard had already done ROM cards for its 1971 desktop calculator to make it adaptable for different roles like the Busycom line, but no game developer seems to have noticed that. Alpex's Raven was a crude prototype, in no way idiot-proof and ready for ordinary people. To find a manufacturer, they ran a series of top-secret promotional presentations in 75 for various TV companies, including RCA. No one wanted Raven, though around this time RCA suddenly gave its engineer Joseph Weisbecker the green light to make a video entertainment system he'd been suggesting for years. Meanwhile, Alpex gave up on TV companies and proceeded to probe its suppliers, such as a Fairchild guy. The guy came, liked the prototype, and informed the head office. The head office sent people for a serious business talk and evaluation, and the engineer on that team was the one and only Jerry Lawson. Jerry also liked what he saw, but there would have to be changes. The only controller was a keyboard, that would need to be redone. The cartridges were flimsy. Oh, and the processor? We're not using an Intel, we need to rework it for a Fairchild F8. The pitch they sent back to the bosses was optimistic, though. Swappable game cartridges meant the system would never be rendered obsolete. The development of what would become the Fairchild Video Entertainment System continued for the rest of 75 and most of 76. Industrial designer Nicholas Tailsfor created the consumer-suitable game cartridge. He used the then-popular Stereo 8 audio cassette format as the base, the one with a single reel holding an 8-track looping tape. It was already the right shape and size, and people knew how to stick them into their car's stereos and not to touch the tape at the end. Perfect, right? They already know how to handle them. Another engineer, Ron Smith, did a spring-loaded door that would cover the contacts of the board inside when the cart was out of the system. They devised a locking mechanism too, that both firmly locked the cartridge in and ejected it when the user pressed a big eject button. To draw attention, the carts were made in bright yellow plastic, and with big labels. The artwork on them commissioned to a popular Japanese-American artist, Tom Kamifuji, who had just the right style to catch your eye. Bright colors, clean lines, easy to print. One of his works most likely inspired the colors of the early Apple logo. His game card art was a bit abstract, a bit exaggerating the nature of the games it promoted, and that kinda set the tone for game cartridge designs for years to come, even after Fairchild itself switched to cheaper labels without the fancy art. Then Nicholas Tales 4 designed the casing for the console itself, made it simple, clean, with a compartment for storing the game controllers. The controllers were developed by everyone. All the engineers on the project got involved, and they even hired a new one to implement the system sketched by Jerry Lawson. The resulting Fairchild hand controller was unique. It was a plastic handle, a rod with a button under your index finger. On the tip, the rod had a joystick for your thumb. To some of you, this may seem somewhat familiar, most likely to those who have seen or played with the Nunchuck controller for the Nintendo Wii console. It's similar, though maybe more ergonomic. But the hand controller had less apparent features. The joystick could be pressed down into its base, and that would register as another input. You could also use it two-handed with the other hand pulling the joystick out of its base or rotating the big knob on its top. All of this was designed to manage one of the system's two built-in games, Hockey. It was like Pong, but you could move your paddle stick around the playing field and rotate it, and there was also a goalie you had to control to prevent the opponent from scoring. Another novel control was a button on the body of the console itself labeled Hold. It let you pause the game in progress. Earlier consoles didn't have that. Some of the later ones wouldn't. The Fairchild Video Entertainment System was offered to consumers in November 76, just in time for Christmas season shopping lists. In addition to built-in tennis and hockey, Fairchild sold a few video cards containing 1-4 games. A knockoff of Tank, a shooting gallery, tic-tac-toe, doodling programs, and apparently there was also a video blackjack card. The late 70s was the time when your console drawing playing cards on the screen, in color, was something to be proud of. Then Christmas 76 came, and the following day Jerry went to the factory to take care of some papers. But the day after Christmas is Hell Day, when everyone has opened their presents, everyone is confused, and everyone is calling for tech support. And it just so happened that on Hell Day 76, the only people at the Fairchild facilities were one security guard and one Jerry Lawson. So Jerry started answering the calls. Someone asked where the battery compartment was, even though the system didn't have one, but the question was legitimate, I think. Early in the 70s, small household electronics were mainly battery-powered. Then someone called to ask what to do after their dog had peed on the console. Then an irate woman asked, My game hums. Do you know why? Cause it doesn't know the words, lady, said Jerry, and that's when the guards stopped rerouting the calls. The humming might not have been so innocent, though. All console manufacturers of the day, even Magnavox and Atari, lived in fear of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. The commission had strict standards for emissions produced by gadgets and checked everything for compliance. When Fairchild was presenting the console at a trade show in Chicago, Alcorn and Bushnell came to Jerry and told him that a little noise they saw on the screen could mean big trouble. They were right. To pass the FCC certification, the console had to have extensive aluminum shielding on the inside. Every single game card had to be tested too. Later generations of engineers didn't have this problem, of course. As Jerry tells it, a company I've been mentioning sometimes, Texas Instruments, could never make products quite up to the emissions standards. So in the end, instead of investing in technology... It bought a law, lobbied for a change in regulations so that even its substandard garbage passed all the checks. Isn't legalized corruption awesome? One Fairchild game I'd like to give extra attention is Video Card 4 Spitfire. It's another one of those side view aerial combat games like Dogfight and Ace. When you started Spitfire, you chose whether you wanted to play it in two player or one player mode by pressing number keys on the console. One for two-player, and two for one-player. You heard that right. Another goof is that the game manual introduces the planes on the screen as the Red Baron and the Blue Max. Even though the Blue Max was an award in the German Empire and the name of a nice film about a German pilot, so there's some serious case of friendly fire going on here. The single-player mode is what's interesting, because in it the Red Baron is controlled by the computer, and some variables governing its behavior change depending on who scores. If you shoot the baron down, it gets a little better next round. If you get shot down, the opponent gets worse. Spitfire is too primitive to notice much of a difference, but this is our first run-in with an attempt to automatically adjust the difficulty of the game for the best experience. Fine-tuning how challenging a game is, is hard, and once in a while developers come up with some kind of self-balancing system. Some even remember that the balancing system itself needs balancing. Anyway, Spitfire, in all its glory, was programmed by one Michael K. Glass, and we're quite sure of that because... You know, let's put the topic of programmers sneaking developer credits into their games aside for a later episode. It has played a pretty big role in the industry. With swappable ROM cartridges and games implemented as microprocessor programs, the Fairchild Video Entertainment System was the first, second-generation video game console offered to the public. But it didn't remain the only one for long. A few months later, RCA released its Studio 2. A disaster. It had black-and-white graphics and was controlled by keypads built into the body of the console, so it looked more like a first-generation system, and there were plenty of them available. However, the RCA Studio 2 does have another first in the industry to its credit, So let's give it a little more time. It all started with an RCA engineer, Joseph Weisbecker, who got an idea to make a small personal computer sometime in 1969, and he did, in his home, calling it a Flexible Recreational Educational Device, or FRED. FRED continued to be worked on for a few more years, and watching the development were Joseph's two daughters, Jean and Joyce, Joyce in particular. She even started programming for the system. Then RCA noticed Fred, took the design and compacted it into 8-bit processors, the Cosmac 1801 and 1802, which it started selling in 75 and 76. Also, in 75, RCA tried to make an arcade cabinet with swappable games, but that project failed. The company could have started work on the game console, but it didn't, until it became apparent that others were already doing it. In 76, RCA got busy with a game console that would become the Studio 2 and a home computer kit Weisbecker wanted to make, the VIP. That's in addition to a computer build Joseph was publishing in Popular Electronics. The VIP computer needed some sample programs, so when Joyce was back home on a summer break, Dad asked her if she wanted to write some games. With no pay. The RCA gave no budget for that. And so Joyce wrote a couple of games and was credited in the computer's manual. Then, all of a sudden, RCA management realized that its console would need some games as well. They clearly didn't think about it too hard, as the Studio 2 only had a total of 14 titles made for it, ever. So, Joseph contracted Joyce to make a quiz game. She'd be paid, but she'd get no credit. Joyce created the game... Becoming the first professional female video game developer. And you can't call it nepotism, as the processor in the console was essentially the thread she'd grown up with, so not asking her as one of the few major experts would have been silly. Then Joyce programmed another two games that both fit onto a single card, but she couldn't save the studio too. It failed. What succeeded was the processor inside. The Cosmic 1802 turned out to be perfectly suited for tasks requiring rugged, resilient hardware. Six of them travelled as far as Jupiter, inside the Galileo orbiter. If you feel like reading more, the stories of Joyce Weisbecker, Jerry Lawson and the systems they worked on have been covered in great detail by one writer, Benj Edwards. He was the one who took that 2009 interview with Jerry too, and it still remains a major source of information about his life and work. Reading about the lesser-known people and companies of the series is great, because otherwise the story of the 70s in video games would have been just a dull account of Atari does a thing. Actually, what is Atari up to? You wouldn't believe it. Borrowing other people's ideas again. In 76, to help with the development of its game cartridge, Fairchild contracted an engineer, Doug Hardy. Doug quit before the project was finished, and then got hired at Atari, where he assisted with their design of a video game cartridge. What a fascinating coincidence. But a cartridge for what? For Stella. No, not the girl the engineers like to drool over. For Project Stella, Atari's second-generation game console. The processor at its heart was the MOS Technology 6507, a descendant of Motorola 6800. By the way, between the two processors, there was also the MOS 6502, which was used in the Apple I, Apple II, and Commodore PET. Pretty popular. The 6507 appeared on the market in 75, and was chosen by Atari's brain boxes at Cyan Engineering because it was cheap. The game console had to be cheaper than microcomputers. It was made for regular people with no interest in saving by doing DIY builds. Cost-cutting was the order of the day, which did not bode well for the console. Nolan Bushnell had little faith in it and set a highly conservative objective. Just make something that can run Pong, Tank, and a driving game. You know, the classics. The controllers packed in with the system would be good old knobs and a pair of very simple one-button joysticks. It's funny how Bushnell, who just a few years earlier had built his company on doing new things, was now looking at the new software-based games with a bit of that old man's scepticism. But he also had Cyan engineers make a prototype of a beer-fetching robot, Kermit, that could navigate a building by reading special barcodes plastered for it on the walls. Then Kermit fell down the stairs. To demonstrate that the new console would be able to run tank and whatever, In parallel to the development of the system, Atari had a team of programmers working on an action-packed cartridge for it. On release it would be titled Combat, and proudly advertised as containing 27 games. 27 games on a single cart? How? Easy, when most of the list are three core games but with slightly different options turned on. There was tank, tank with a different maze layout, tank with bouncy projectiles instead of regular shots, and tank with some kind of invisibility thing going. There were variations of Jet Fighter too, and that was based on an arcade follow-up to tank, where the tanks were replaced by triangles, jet planes in a top-down view. You could control the speed of the planes, but never stop them, and instead of the maze, there were clouds you could hide under. Finally, there were variations of the biplane game, same as the Ace, Spitfire, and Dogfight from earlier, but with an option to replace a biplane with a big bomber or a formation of planes. The combat card was full of action and, well, combat. Atari Marketing knew what people wanted. But none of the games had a computer opponent, owing to technical limitations. There were many of those, and yet the games ran fairly smoothly and delivered an almost arcade-like experience. Atari engineers managed to optimize the way the system was drawing graphics to a frightening efficiency. They used a trick which wasn't really invented by them, but was not practiced industry-wide. After Atari did it, it would be practiced industry-wide. So let's finally meet... Sprites. When video game graphics were created by transistors jerking beams of electrons to draw crude lines and dots on a repurposed TV screen, things were easy. Okay, they were not easy. and They're not going to get much easier. In the late 70s, we have computers involved. They ideally need to have the entire screen represented in their digital memory in a frame buffer. The image has to become an array of dots, pixels, each matching an address in the memory, and the value stored at that address sets the color. However, memory is, as always, in short supply, and our processor has limited data width, so we can't exactly recalculate millions of pixels multiple times per second to have an illusion of smooth motion on the screen. And the richer the color palette we're working with, the bigger the numbers, the more memory and processing power we need too. And that's how you end up with the graphical capabilities of the RCA Studio 2, a black and white field of 64 by 32 pixels. The Fairchild console had 8 colors and 4 times as many pixels, but was still limited. If you think about it though, at any given moment most of the screen in those 70s games does not change. There are a few moving objects, that's it. This is where the trick comes in. You split the image into layers, have a background and a foreground that don't change during play, and between them draw moving objects, or as they're widely called, sprites. Then, instead of redoing the calculations for the entire screen every frame, you only process the horizontal lines where the sprites are or were. So in a game like Tank, at least half of the screen is going to be just the background, and the system will only need to work hard on the bands where the two tanks and their tiny projectiles are moving. To streamline things further, the separation of sprites and static layers can be done in hardware, with different circuits and areas of memory handling the data before it gets brought together. And since you're already tracking each sprite, you could even have a hardware collision detection system that would alert you every time they overlap. It's all good. Except this is still the 70s and everything is both terrible and expensive. There will be limits to how many sprites you can have, how many can be drawn on the same horizontal line, how many colors a sprite can have, and don't get me started on the backgrounds. These limits will be rising all the way through the 80s, but that's in the future. The limit for moving objects offered by Atari's new console was five single color shapes. They were designated as two player characters, two projectiles, and a ball, Just enough to make a Pong, a tank, or a driving game. You get what you pay for, Nolan. But wait, it gets worse. The total amount of memory in the system was 128 bytes. And it was used not just by your game, but by the system as a whole. This is not enough for an adequate frame buffer. So Atari Artisans did the next worst thing, and did not use a frame buffer at all. A team of engineers led by J. Glenn Miner designed a custom chip for the console's television interface adapter responsible for audio and video output. Its big task was to tell your TV what color to draw right as the beam of electrons inside the cathode ray tube was about to hit the spot where that color was supposed to be displayed. No prep work. They called it Racing the Beam. Synchronization was vital. The system had to be fully dedicated to filling a scan line on the screen, because any delay ruined the image. Then there came a breather of 76 processor cycles between the scan lines when the chip could do other things, check for inputs. Then it was time to draw the next line. There were also intervals between the end of one screen refresh and the start of another. In other words, a computer drawing graphics with a frame buffer is kind of like a cook who prepares and lays out an entire meal in a dining hall and then invites everyone to help themselves to it. The way Atari was doing it was more like a fast-food worker slapping burgers together and tossing them into every single window of a passing bullet train with only short breaks between the train cars and different trains. Naturally, there was no high-level programming language for this thing. No, programming had to be done very, as they say, close to the metal. You had to know how all the chips and other hardware worked and interacted to make the console do anything. And with how unconventional the custom graphical system was, programming experience outside of Atari offered little help or consolation. But because games were, had to be, programmed close to the metal, As months and then years went by, game developers would figure out tricks, allowing them to do what they supposedly couldn't. Say, imagine that beam of electrons in slow motion. It's slowly scanning, redrawing the screen, moving down line by line. In a few passes, it draws a sprite, looking good. Suddenly, new instructions come in as that frame is still being drawn, and they say that the sprite from earlier is actually in a different position, coming up soon. So, the beam draws that sprite again in the same frame. When the next frame begins, that sprite is back in its original position, but new instructions are coming. And this is how you could get multiple instances of the same sprite on the screen. They all look the same, but each can be moved or removed independently. And that lets you construct, say, compound moving shapes or just have more stuff on the screen. Something like that would be used by Larry Wagner and Bob Whitehead in their 1979 card Video Chess. Yes. Chess, the game with six different piece types in two colors, and there are 32 pieces on the screen, and I'm not even touching the computer opponent. Simply seeing chess drawn by a system designed to display five sprites was unbelievable. But it could be done. The console was released in October 77 for $200 as the Atari Video Computer System, also known as the Atari 2600 after its rebranding, but I'll be referring to it mostly as the VCS. Also knowing the original name explains what prompted Fairchild to rename its video entertainment system to Channel F. It meant Channel Fun, but leaving it at F added exciting ambiguity. The VCS got ahead of the competition in sales numbers quickly, thanks to the power of the brand. It wasn't too hard for it to stay ahead, as Atari was a game company after all. RCA and Fairchild merely had a few enthusiastic engineers and programmers. They liked selling their processors to their own video game divisions and putting it down as sales, but actually caring about games? Nah. The VCS didn't even have that many brand new games to offer at launch. There was that Combat cart with 27 Shades of Tank, the Video Olympics card with a dozen flavors of Pong, Indy 500, hello, Grand Track 10, a Shooting Gallery cart, Blackjack, Maths, and Surround, a knockoff of that blockade game about driving snakes around. Oh, well, okay, there was also this Street Racer cart with variations of games where you control the shape, like a car or a skier, and there were objects scrolling down from the top of the screen, and you had to either hit them, or dodge them, or shoot them better than your opponent. So, an attempt at a vertically scrolling game, like what Taito had done in 74. And there was the Starship card, featuring space-themed games we'll talk about in a dedicated episode. I do need to note the titular game, an adaptation of Atari's own 1977 arcade cabinet, Starship One. It was another first-person shooter of sorts, but without a maze. You were using the joystick to pilot your ship in the void of space, aim at alien shapes borrowed from Star Trek, I think, and shoot them. That's what Star Trek was all about, right? Killing everyone you meet? The Atari VCS wasn't doing too hot, though. Stella's sales were good, not Stellar. The first-generation console market was in a dive, people were sick of Pong, Tank, and Driving Games, and here comes the second generation, with launch titles being... Pong, Tank, and Driving Games. Are you serious? We've just run those people out of town, and you want to offer us exactly what they did? Late in 78, Bushnell, who didn't seem to trust software much, started making noises about the console being a dud but in 78 his opinion counted for little. That's the year when Warner sent in Ray Cassar to whip game developers into shape, Nolan got shuffled off to a consultant position, and kicked out come 79. Shortly after that came the moment Cynthia, whom they hired as a teenager to sit on reception back in 72, ended up staying at Atari for longer than Nolan K. Bushnell. Nice job, Cynthia. Nice job, Alan Alcorn, too. Oh, and Warner... Cancelled the beer fetching robot project. And a lot of other R and D work. I'm sure this won't have consequences. I'm not delving into the details of Atari under corporate management in this episode. The company's about to start making personal computers, expanding, bleeding staff. That deserves a closer look since when we get to the eighties, the number of people with ex Atari programmer on their resume will be silly. In 78-79, the main bulk of the second console generation came in, and many new systems started to appear on the market. Though not as many as in the first generation, that's lesson learned. I'll talk about some of these consoles later, if an interesting game or developer provide an excuse, but a few curiosities are worth a mention now, just to show how people's minds were working. 1978 brought the release of the Philips Video Pack G7000, also known as the Magnavox Odyssey 2. This one was a tiny computer with a full keyboard built into the body of the console. They even offered to teach you programming on it. A few years later, and exclusively in Europe, the system would receive a special expansion unit with an additional processor inside, letting you play chess. A good chunk of the games for the Odyssey 2 were designed by one guy, Ed Everett, who kept coming up with stuff and developing titles that were selling fine, even as Philips was trying to get out of the console business and shut the project down. But they couldn't stop Ed. Once, word reached Ed that dads wanted something to play with their little kids. Something more reliant on strategy than reaction speed. Dads could not compete there. That's how The Odyssey 2 got more board games, literal board games, the early 80s master strategy series. There was Quest for the Rings, where players picked out of four characters with different abilities and went looking for the rings in a magic kingdom on their table. Various dangerous encounters were played on the console. A similar system was used in Conquest of the World, which was risk, but with TV battles instead of dice rolls. Finally, they released The Great Wall Street Fortune Hunt, a gambling simulator where you could invest in some stocks and then a random newsflash on the TV would tell you your stocks were now worthless. We're kind of familiar with all of these game concepts. And of course, even today, board games sometimes require a companion app on your phone too for various functions. Say, in a 2020 game Forgotten Waters, the box contains a pile of tokens, A map, some standees for characters, and cards with sweet pirate booty, but all of the plot is delivered to the players by means of a special website. Another console trailing behind the Atari VCS was the APF MP1000. The console itself was not a big hit and had a dozen games released for it in total, but it brings us to another fascinating person, the guy who developed the console's prototype, Edward Lee Smith. Like Jerry Lawson, he was one of the very few black people in the industry of the time. Smith wasn't as lucky as Lawson, since his parents had little active interest in science or one another, and he was growing up stuck in the Brownsville neighborhood of New York, where crime and poverty fist bump each other every morning. He was 14 when 1968 came, and after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, Ed saw riots in the streets all around. The Black Panthers party tried to recruit him. Tempting, but Ed's slightly older brother told him not to join. So he chose to settle on electronic engineering. It was also exciting, paid the bills, and offered the hope of getting out of Brownsville, even though many of Ed's friends told him that engineering was beyond what black kids could do. In 75, Ed was working for a traffic signal company Marbleite, when it considered using microprocessors to run the lights. As one of their top engineers, Smith was sent to take a class at Fairchild, though he never met Lawson. In 76 or 77, he joined APF Electronics, a Jewish family-run company with partners in Hong Kong, 50 Chinese and almost as many black employees, a highly diverse business. APF had already released a successful first-generation game console, the TV Fun, and Ed Smith was told to build and test a prototype for a new system. They reverse-engineered the Apple One, the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET to uncover their secrets and used the Motorola 6800 processor. Once the console was done, APF got programmers to write some games for it, and Ed was asked to playtest. Just sit there for three hours at the end of each day and play through the games to make sure everything worked. It was awful. There weren't any shortcuts or secrets. He had to get good at those games to reach and test later levels. But he was also taking written-off functional MP1000s from presentations and whatnot back to the housing projects he was from and just handed them out to the kids there. They could have never afforded to buy them, but they loved playing the games, sometimes for hours. Kept them off the streets, too. Eventually, Ed moved on. The moment an opportunity came, he ditched engineering and joined sales to fulfill his childhood dream, wearing a nice suit to work. But when the MP1000 reached store shelves in 78, Ed Smith was still doing the next big build. The Imagination Machine. I'm not sure whether it served as an expansion for the MP1000 or the other way around, but it was a big base with a built-in keyboard and you could mount the console on top of it and it became a home computer. The idea was stolen from Mattel. Mattel had made some announcements regarding its upcoming console, the Intellivision, and one of them was that it would have an expansion turning it into a home computer. The APF team took the idea, but delivered before Mattel. And it wasn't just Mattel and APF thinking about these computer console conversion units. They were quite numerous in the late 70s and early 80s, official and unofficial. A keyboard, extra memory, tape readers. Even Atari had a project in the works called The Graduate for teaching kids BASIC on the VCS, but cancelled it. It's a common trait of the second generation consoles, their identity crisis their appearing right as microcomputers are rising in popularity while technically being cut down computers themselves i've even seen them referred to at the time as video game computers so why not boost sales by offering a potential add-on to upgrade to the real thing and with that you'd be able to program in basic too that's popular On every corner, Microsoft is trying to license a BASIC for your computer, your game console, your alarm clock, your pet rock, anything with traces of silicon is good enough for Microsoft. Another common feature of the late 70s console industry, continued from the first generation days, is that on most systems, all games released were first-party titles, developed and published by the same companies that made the units. They operated like toy companies, releasing a dollhouse and then all the dolls and accessories for it. Or maybe it was more like building a bookcase and then writing all the books to put in it. Unless a company had both engineers and a lot of programmer talent inventing, borrowing games all the time, it really couldn't offer much choice to the owners of its consoles. And that's what did many of the second generation systems in. Even experienced veterans of the arcade business could have problems. Say, Bally released its Z80-based console, the Bally Professional Arcade, in 78. The plan was for 77, but there were issues in production. Then there were issues in distribution, as the system was sold only through one mail-order retailer. Then it turned out the design was prone to overheating, and effective returns start piling up. Meanwhile, the promised keyboard and programming add-on was nowhere in sight, and the stopgap measure was to release a cart with Tiny Basic, which had become a popular free alternative to Microsoft Edition. In seventy nine, Bally's retailer got so fed up with it, they had a fire sale offloading the consoles for fifty dollars, and even offering a few dozen defective units for two cents, with a note that under warranty Bally would have to repair or replace them for twenty five dollars. Bally was not amused. The console's lack of original games wasn't helping, even when they didn't look entirely awful. For example, 280 ZAP from 1978. It's a driving game using, again, the first-person perspective, a shameless knockoff of the 1976 cabinet Night Driver by Atari. There is the hood of your car on the screen, and the infinite blackness of featureless terrain. You know where the road is, thanks to the bright bullets zooming past you. It's a nice effect, especially when you go faster. The road can weave left and right. That's all it does. You just stay on the road until the time limit you've set for yourself runs out. That's the entire game. By the way, Atari stole the idea for Night Driver all the way in Germany, where a serious engineer, Dr. Reiner Feuerst, was working on a serious driving simulator. Forrest wasn't the first, German car companies already had simulators, but those were stupidly expensive. The engineer didn't have the money for an industrial-grade electromechanical rig, so to raise some money for his development, he decided to start by making an arcade cabinet about driving. Apparently, he ripped apart a Pong cabinet to see how to make video games on the cheap, and then designed a system with 28 circuit boards inside. Nürburgring. He presented his invention in 75 or 76, Atari and other companies immediately ripped it off and flooded the market with cheaper cabinets. But Rainer Forrest kept developing the system, made a bike-riding variant, started using microprocessors, added colored daytime graphics, and in 1980 even released a cabinet where the player was seated in a cabin that could roll. When you turned left the cabin rolled right, to make you feel a simulated centrifugal force. Dr. Forrest's company must have been a success, since it still exists and offers professional driving simulators. Going back to America, in 79, Bally sold its failure of a console division and went off to run casinos. Video poker also appeared in the 70s. But the Bally Professional Arcade will reemerge in our story under a different name. For now, let's just marvel at the fact that the graphics hardware in the console saw many years of use later in Bally midway arcade machines, and the chip was custom and designed at Dave Nutting Associates. They even released a manual on the system's operation in 78, usually referred to as the Nutting Manual. When we last met Dave Nutting Associates in late 75, they were introducing microprocessors to the arcades in two different forms, as a smarter pinball table and a pretty video arcade cabinet. Of these two branches, it was pinball that took off first. Pinball tables with microprocessors and other integrated circuits replacing old electronics were more reliable. They could have more complicated and interconnected targets, making them more fun to explore and to play. Digital displays improved the looks, and the production costs were going down. The pinball industry loved microelectronics. And in October 76, Bally even released the Fireball table, which was specifically made and marketed for home use. It didn't have a coin slot and cost much cheaper than commercial machines. Only around $700. Sure, the following year, one could buy both a microcomputer and a game console for the money, but those wouldn't get you a somewhat mediocre table with real steel balls. Meanwhile, in the world of video arcades, the jump to the new technology wasn't immediately seen as a necessity by everyone. Breakout came out in 76, it had no processors inside, but it was doing fine. A Yakuza clan was pirating it, that's a clear sign of quality. Still, processors were opening the way for new games and new game concepts the industry desperately needed. For example, that blockade game I've talked about today, with Snakes. It was powered by an Intel 8080. Gremlin Industries proudly presented it at trade shows in 76 to rave reviews. And yes, there were game reviews at this point. Coin Industry PlayMeter and Replay Magazines, founded in 74 and 75, were publishing reviews of arcade cabinets. Not for players, play this game, it's awesome, but for operators. Buy this cabinet, it's gonna make you money. David Isle's magazine Creative Computing also emerged in 74, and would regularly cover computer and console games for the next decade. So anyway, uplifted by glowing reviews of Blockade, the Gremlin team went home with thousands of orders, and then they realized they had no cabinets built, and no idea how actually to produce video game cabinets. It was their first one. While they were sorting this out, Blockade was ripped off by everyone, including Atari, the sworn enemy of jackals, a big friend of hypocrisy. Namco, at least, paid to license its copy. Of course, after all the industry hype had worn off, it was discovered that the Snake game was unpopular with a very important group of people. Players. So this was a bust. Gremlin didn't stop, though, and made a variation of the concept titled Hustle this time producing a thousand units before announcing it. In April 77, they promoted Hustle by means of, um, sexy ladies. Hustle cabinets went on tour in Europe and America with gremlin girls Sabrina Osmond and Lynn Reed by their side, looking all attractive. They offered a challenge. Beat a girl at Hustle two times out of three and get $100. Lose and... Well, you could tell your mates you've played a game with a girl. There were more than 1,200 contenders. The girls lost only to seven. It wasn't called hustle for nothing. Gremlin went on to make other cabinets and even a personal computer, the Novel 760, which was a big desk with a wooden finish, and the computer built into it. The system could run a few Gremlin games, but was never a hit, its educational software got some use in San Diego schools, and when Sega bought Gremlin, the computer business was just shut down. You'll hear more about Gremlin in later episodes. The company had a funny habit of releasing games very similar to industry classics a year or so before those classics. Pinball aside, the arcade industry was plodding along for a few years. Breakout was huge, but it was just one game. Investors started to get disappointed, the common 70s theme of video games were just a fad, got more press, but then help came. As in other cases of American game industry running out of ideas, the help came from Japan. Japan, or more specifically Taito, had a secret weapon. Tomohiro Nishikado. When Nishikado joined the industry back in the electromechanical 1969, after years of engineering education, he was appalled at the crudeness of the cabinets he saw. They were just so primitive. He knew that better games were possible and tried to push the limits. I mentioned his design in episode 1.5, Sky Fighter 2. It used a painted drum and a mirror to create an illusion of flying through the sky, and other mirrors served to project onto the sky enemy planes and the projectiles fired by the player. In 73, he got his hands on Pong and made Taito's knockoff, Elepong. But Nishikado was not satisfied with just a copy; he wanted to understand and improve the design, so he developed it into the soccer cabinet I mentioned last time. According to him, this was the first original video game developed in Japan, and timing-wise it rings true. In 74, his Speed Race came out, the vertically-scrolling racing game I've mentioned too. It also happened to be one of the first handful of video games to use sprite-based graphics, and one of the, if not the first, Japanese game to get a release in the USA. Then, sprites also made an appearance in Tomohiro Nishikado's 1975 Western Gun, which, as we learned last time, was adapted and redesigned for the American market by Dave Nutting Associates. On seeing that version, Nishikado was wowed by the graphics and vowed to make his own microprocessor game. And that's where he faced trouble. Japanese processors weren't good enough. Taito would have to import American ones, and even if it had, the expensive tools necessary to develop a system with them were not available in Japan. So before he could develop his game, Tomohiro Nishikado had to develop the tools for it. It was a pretty major hurdle, setting up the workshop took longer than programming the game itself. When it finally came to it, though, the greatest inspiration was Breakout. It took the Japanese arcade industry by surprise, American games weren't that popular usually. Tomohiro liked that it had an objective, the wall you needed to break, and that the more bricks you destroyed, the harder it was to hit the last remaining ones, and that the ball sped up as you played, gradually increasing the difficulty. Now, around this time, Bushnell offered him a job at Atari, potentially paying five to six times tighter wages, but Tomohiro Nishikado politely refused. He wasn't going to join them, he was going to beat them. He replaced the -the long-in-a-tooth ball-paddling action with shooting. Shooting a wall not of bricks, but of incoming enemies. He wanted them to move, too, and that caused some complications. Animating tanks or jet planes to make their movement and attacks look natural was too difficult. People as targets were ruled out by the management. They weren't about to make another immoral death race or glorify war. So, drawing inspiration from plentiful Japanese sci-fi films and H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, Nishikado went with squid and octopus-like aliens as the enemy. They were going to look weird, and no one would split hairs over their animation. So far, this is not particularly exciting. Shooting games have been around for decades, shooting video games exist too, a few targets show up, you aim a gun, and time your shots to hit them. It's been done before. But this is where the full power of a microprocessor comes in. Remember how the Atari VCS was designed to show five moving sprites on the screen? And it was enough to recreate the greatest Atari arcade hits of the time? Well, this new alien shooting game has 55 aliens on the screen. 55, that that can't be real. But wait, they're also animated. Only two frames of animation, but it's sufficient to make them wiggle their tentacles as they move. But that's not all. They can shoot, and they're not limited by some sprite limit to like a single projectile on the screen. No, they can really blast you from all cannons, and you have to dodge. There are defensive walls to hide behind, but alien shots destroy them, like those cacti in Western Gun, by the way. And to add to this, there is also that flying saucer that appears sometimes behind the enemy force, and you need to time your shot perfectly to hit it and get extra points, all while the alien army is firing at you and moving closer. And if they get too close, you're toast. And there is also this sound. Not just the sound effects of all the shots fired or the saucer, but these few notes that keep playing over the action. Is that music? Video games can have music? For real? Not not a chime at the start or the end, but during the game? Huh? Tying all these great new things together was the tempo. The cabinet's hardware was doing its best, but 55 aliens are no joke. Updating the screen, shifting and animating the enemies was slow at first, and the music playback was also affected. So when the game started, no one was in a hurry. The horde of squids shuffled in the distance to occasional thumps of the soundtrack. But as the player fired shots into the descending menace, hitting them without really aiming, the number of monsters dwindled, and so did the load on the processor. The game ran faster, and this did not have to be programmed and just happened naturally. With this, the tempo of the music also increased, adding to the excitement. Soon there would only be a few enemies left, zapping across the screen, firing all the time to the intense tempo that never let up. Then you were down to the last one, the angriest of them all. Get a timey shot right? Yes! Well, congratulations. Welcome to the next stage. All the same enemies again, but a bit more aggressive. Now, for more than two episodes, I've been annoying you with stories about people excitedly putting a dot on the screen, color dots, sprites, five sprites, and maybe even with sound effects. So I think at this point you are sufficiently contextualized to fully understand why Tomohiro Nishikado's latest game, coming out in July 1978, is about to blow people's minds, revitalize the video game industry, and render all the earlier games of the 70s and the game consoles designed around them hopelessly obsolete. Sorry, Jerry, cartridges are not going to help here much. The original name given to the game by its creator was Space Monster. Then the management asked to change it to Space Invader, No problem, Invader, Monster, it's the same number of letters. Later, for the benefit of Western audiences, they told him to change it to the name we all know. Space Invaders. Just one more letter, but... uh, The game had to be reprogrammed. I'll explain in a later episode why few things were dreaded more by developers of the era than some idiot in marketing coming up with a slightly longer title for an already finished game. It was a pain. Before the game's release, opinions on Space Invaders at Taito were divided. Those involved in development, engineers, managers, loved it, even excusing themselves from meetings sometimes, saying they had to go to the bathroom, but sneaking off to play a few rounds of the game instead. The rest of the company thought it was too hard, too overwhelming, and just too much. When time came to introduce Space Invaders at trade shows, it was not given the pride of place, but put in a corner. Oh yeah, we also have that, but... Ugh. In spite of that, a few orders for the cabinets were placed. Then more orders came in. Then more. And before you know it, everyone was talking about the game. If you got a high score, you got to put your initials in, and everyone playing that cabinet would see them at the top of the screen. You'd be famous. Points-hungry players explored the limitations and quirks of its programming, discovering strategies and exploits say, the Nagoya attack, as it came to be known. For technical reasons, whenever the invaders fired their shots, the projectile did not come from the invader, but from a spot slightly lower. As it turned out, a player with nerves of steel could let the swarm descend so low that the player's vehicle, a cannon, fit into the gap between the aliens and where their shots appeared, briefly becoming impossible to hit. Bally Midway released Space Invaders in America in November 78, and that's when the game became a worldwide sensation. Tournaments were held, arcade halls sprung up, offering visitors nothing but Space Invaders, and the press spread rumors about a rise in teenage delinquency. Kids were ready for anything to get their hands on more coins, like a burglary or robbing a bank waving a shotgun. Around 1980, another massively exaggerated story took shape that space invaders caused a mass shortage of 100 yen coins all over Japan. At the same time, the moral panic, similar to the one caused by Dungeons & Dragons, reached the highest places. In May 1981, a member of the British Parliament put forth a motion to control space invaders and other electronic games as they caused addiction in young people ready to commit crimes with glazed eyes. To which another member of parliament rose and said If I have glazed eyes, it is perhaps because I am the one honourable member who is an avid player of Space Invaders. I make no apology for the fact that before I came to the house early this afternoon, I had an innocent half pint of beer in a pub with a couple of friends, put lop in a machine and played a game of Space Invaders. Many young people derive innocent and harmless pleasure from Space Invaders. The machines, in amusement arcades, in seaside resorts, and even in pubs, provide genuine, harmless entertainment for young people. I am not surprised that the honorable gentleman, who is a socialist, should extend his socialist beliefs in restriction and control, and all other words that sum up a socialist, to trying to restrict the innocent pleasure of young people. For every example that he gave, there are many thousands of examples of young people who genuinely enjoy themselves playing Space Invaders and who do not go around with, as the Honourable Gentleman said, glazed eyes. Though there may be young people who are addicted to cigarettes, drugs, or alcohol. End quote. Don't be socialists, kids. They don't have video games. Anyway, Space Invaders loudly proclaimed that video game arcades were not a dead fad. You just needed to make better games. Such as countless knockoffs of Space Invaders. In 79, Namco released Galaxian in color, with enemies of different types moving in a more complicated way. That one was a hit too. And in 1980, Atari released an official, licensed, home console version of Space Invaders for the VCS, and that would sell over a million copies and boost the sales of the system itself. The guy who managed to program a cut-down but recognizable adaptation of the legendary hit with extra gameplay options, who started on this project before anyone else even considered porting the game, was Richard Morrow. He was also one of the few programmers at Atari who joined with a prior experience in console games, having created a few titles for the Fairchild Channel F. For his work on Space Invaders, Richard received no bonus pay, so he quit the console division and switched to arcade cabinets where the money was supposed to be better. Then he quit Atari for good. There was little respect for programmers in the industry, and it went back to the early days of computing. You were supposed to be an engineer or a scientist, and pick up programming as a helpful skill, kind of like public speaking. If you're only a programmer, you clearly know nothing. Why are we paying you? As for Tomohiro Nishikado, even though he made a few games after Space Invaders and perhaps could have created another big hit, unfortunately the masters of Taito soon promoted him to management, and that took him out of action for a long time. Alright, we are not diving into the golden age of the arcades kicked off by the pixelated alien invasion in this episode. It's going to take video games to their peak, turn the industry into a bubble, and then everyone will suddenly discover that bubbles can burst. We'll be touching on many games from the good days later, and in the early 80s we'll get some popcorn and a deck chair to watch it all burn. For now, I'll try to sum up this episode, which may be the longest one of the podcast. After the 60s had been spent experimenting with integrated circuits, a number of people arrived at the idea of putting either a complete purpose-built computer or a general-purpose processor into a single microchip. This was done as the 70s rolled in, and Intel happened to ship the first commercial microprocessor, mainly because it had two clients kicking it in the shins to get on with that. As this technology was taking shape, people already brainstormed its possible applications. You could make pocket calculators. You could make smart terminals capable of more than just serving users' data digested by mother mainframe. You could make a small home computer for education or games. You could make a new kind of video game console, both using the system-on-a-chip approach, which gave us the first generation, and microprocessors running games of cartridges, which was the idea for the second one. As everything in the world of games turned into a computer, Microsoft was pumping out its basic and getting paid for it. And by the way, portable game systems also appeared in the 70s, but we'll get to them in episode 2.9. While many ideas got traction and development during the decade, some others didn't, but that doesn't mean they were bad or had no future. The available hardware just wasn't there yet. For example, a tablet computer. That's going to be a real thing decades later. Or that abandoned RCA project of an arcade cabinet with swappable games. It'll be done as well. A home computer module with BASIC for a console? Nintendo is going to have that. Up until Space Invaders, the games of this early computer era were underwhelming. They were inspired by or directly recreating the simplest mainframe games, and even worse, early video arcade games where several moving objects on the screen were already a big deal. But times were changing, and programmers were learning, and they would be the ones carrying the industry for years to come, even as hardware engineers looked down on them, and management treated them with no respect. The lack of respect is going to lead to a mutiny, but that's not the subject of the next episode. Neither are games about space, even though you must have noticed that with Space Race and Computer Space and Space Invaders and Starship and the ever-relevant Space War, something is definitely out there. You may have also noticed that we've blasted through the middle of the 70s again, and still, no computer role-playing games. Maybe there just weren't any? There were and they were better than you might expect for the time. But the best of them happened to be implemented on a system that somehow ended up so obscure that many books on the history of computer and video games not just give it little attention, but completely fail to mention it at all. Which is really, really strange, because at some point it was so highly regarded that, say, film critic Roger Ebert wrote a newspaper piece about it in 1962, Jim Dunnigan made a reference to it in 1969, writing about his, um, university game, and in a pretty famous 1968 movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the birthplace of that system was given as the location where the Hell 9000 computer became operational. It was neither MIT, nor Dartmouth, nor Stanford, nor anywhere near the Silicon Valley, the most overrated place on Earth. No. To learn of the most advanced gaming system of the 70s, we need to go to a different location.
1: Urbana, Illinois.
0: This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening and for donating.